Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I've been doing this show for a long time now, at least it feels like a long time. I think it's been a long time. And uh, as I've mentioned before, one of the reasons I keep doing it is that it allows me to uh, uh, keep in touch with uh, old friends, uh, intellectual interlocutors, uh, crazies I've met along the way, and oftentimes a combination of the two. Uh, And so I've had the great pleasure of having a lot of my friends on and and actually able to keep up conversations because otherwise, you know, people are busy and they live in other, uh, other cities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and but there's there's one conversation I had that, that I was disappointed with, and that was with our guest today, Mark Pesci. We, we both agree that we were both off on that day, and so we we ex, we expected a razzle dazzle uh, meeting of minds. Uh, Mark and I have been uh, talking about tech and mysticism and the future and the archaic past and. Terrence McKenna and virtual reality uh, for quite a long time, uh, you know, well over uh, a twenty-five. I think about twenty-five years now, and um, uh, and he's he's you know one of my favorite people. Uh, he he did a very clever thing that I've always admired, which is he he has a, a very long strange and illustrious career of doing many different things. Uh, you know, he, he, he's invented, he invented an early virtual reality, uh, markup language for the internet back in the day, VRML, which helped people start thinking about, uh, you know, evolving, uh, cyberspace into a, you know, three-dimensional interactive reality, which still remains to some degree around the corner, but I think the corner's pretty close now, uh, and, uh, started up, uh, programs i mean it's it's sort of impossible to list his uh, his his cv and i'll 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 put his website on the uh, on the podcast page so you can check it out uh, yourself i actually asked uh, mark to to help uh, define his uh, his his what what do i call you he's a, he's an inventor he's a commentator he's a lecturer uh, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, I think of him as a teacher. Sometimes he's teaching um, businessmen how to think about the blockchain, and sometimes uh, he's teaching students how to use new media, and sometimes he's teaching the people that um, read him or listen to him on his uh, podcast just about what's going on in tech, and he's, he's always got his finger on the pulse, as they say. And recently, so I've been trying to figure out, like, okay, when am I going to bring Mark back on the show? And do this again better. And uh, the occasion is the publication in an Australian uh, journal called Mianjin uh, of an essay called The Last Days of Reality. And I should say that though Mark is, uh, was born in the United States, he is now an Australian citizen. He, he kind of uh, he pulled up his stakes and uh, went to uh, the other side of the planet, uh, to the the prisoner island, and he's done a, a great job uh, uh, in, uh, there, and um, has helped introduce me to uh, the wonders of Australia, and including uh, their kind of different ecology of public intellectuals. One that has allowed my friend Mark Pesci to to grow mighty, <laughs> including uh, this article, "The Last Days of Reality," which is uh, we'll be talking about, and it's a, a perfect example of the way. Um, 
He brings together uh, cultural criticism, uh, strong technological know-how, a bit of science fiction futurism, a bit of, uh, of psychedelic mysticism into very um, acute and uh, 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 entertaining uh, takes on things. I was, all, I was a little bit, one thing I'll say is I was a little worried about Mark for a bit because he was talking more and more to businessmen. He was becoming more and more successful, which I was happy about because you always want your, your friends to have, you know, to be doing well so they don't come to you and you don't have to worry about them as much. You still worry about them. But, uh, and I was, ah, but is he going to like go kind of like, you know, Silicon Valley, whatever, 3.0, this kind of new weird phase we're in where nobody really buys the hype anymore, but people are holding on to it just because he has to. Uh, but indeed, the last days of reality proves that the old, critical, dark and resplendent sci-fi uh, Mark Pesci remains fully in force. So with that, uh, Mark, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's just dive into this thing because it's, it's a great piece. You bring together a lot of threads and you say something that is really terrifying but in a kind of accessible way or you, it leads to a kind of terrifying conclusion um, but one that we really need to wrestle with. Uh, but it starts out with a, something that a lot of listeners might not know about, which is uh, an a Australian... Uh, Facebook document that sort of leaked out of their, uh, you know, confidential inner circle uh, and uh, sometime last year and became, you know, a bit of a brouhaha as anything that leaks out of Facebook does. But tell, talk a little bit about this, this uh, document, where it came from, what it, what it says. So on the, on the 1st of May last year, there was a lead story in The Australian, which is the big sort of daily national broadsheet here. And the media reporter for The Australian had seen the kind of deck that companies use when they're trying to sell something to another company. You go into the conference room and you put your slides up. And this slide deck actually showed, and this slide deck had been written by the co-CEOs of Facebook's Australian operations. So the first thing you have to be clear on is this is core Facebook policy from core Facebook executives. And what this did is it actually showed these advertisers and the advertisers they were going to were effectively the big 20 companies, the big banks, the big retailers in Australia. Facebook would walk in and on these slides, they would show that they had profiled people so well and specifically they profiled teenagers so well that they could know in real time when a teenager was feeling vulnerable or lonely or worthless and that they could know to within a few minutes exactly when they would be able to target and add for that person when they were their most vulnerable. And, you know, this made quite a splash here, certainly. I was on a popular TV show called The Project that evening with the hosts. And again, this is commercial television, but they were still enraged because it seemed like it was a, a real violation of the bond around Facebook because Facebook encourages us to share. That's what it says it's for. It's to help the world share. But the other side of this is that this sharing was being gathered, used to build an emotional profile of an individual, and then effectively weaponized and aimed at that individual to help undermine their own autonomy. You know, it's funny because this uh, research or this claim that they're making, you know, reminds us of that, uh, the, the research that came out a bit earlier 
about Facebook and and manipulating the news feed uh, and showing that and you know I'd like to hear your, your take on that. But in a way, this is this is even more disturbing simply because it's more directly coming from executives and and ma- and making their claims to their advertisers. You know behind. The closed doors. It's it's really like their their line. You know, it's not so much like oh, we had these researchers. They did this thing. Maybe it was unethical. But really, the creepy thing is the idea that they're manipulating motions directly, whatever, or or more efficiently and exactingly than other forms of media up to date have manipulated emotions. Um, but it's really it's coming from on high. So it's can you talk about how this document or this deck? sort of new, uh, changed or, or reframed what we had learned about from that earlier study about manipulating the newsfeed in order to create different kinds of uh, emotional reactions? So back in 2014, this earlier study, which was published in the journals, uh, I think PNAS, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, was done by researchers at Princeton University. And it took a look at 689,000 Facebook news feeds. And what it did was it actually then via Facebook, they actually altered the content of these feeds. So some feeds got more positive stuff. So you get more kitten videos. Some feeds would get more negative stuff. You'd get more reports of war or death or disease. And then they watched how those people reacted. And of course, understandably, if you feed people a diet of happy stuff, they tend to react happier. If you feed people a diet of negative stuff, they tend to become sort of more depressed. And what they were looking at was this phenomenon of what they called emotional contagion, which was basically that you could change people's moods by changing what you were feeding them in their newsfeed. And so the paper was published, and it took about 24 hours before someone in the broader research community went and said, so Facebook disclosed to these 689,000 users that their, their news feeds were being manipulated for the purposes of their study. You did actually do that, right? And this was when Facebook said, oh, no, we didn't do that. And this is also when it became clear that the normal checks and balances that this kind of broad longitudinal survey would need to go through in the ethics committees of the various universities were simply, I guess, passed over because Facebook simply gave the researchers the tools that they needed to be able to manipulate the emotions of nearly a million people without any informed consent. So this was, I guess, the first half of us seeing that Facebook, because it curates the newsfeed, and they use that term curate, I think we should probably use the term censor because it describes the process more accurately. Facebook is all of the time determining what goes in your newsfeed, saying we're going to focus on these things and we're not going to focus on those things. I'll come in a minute to why they do that. But all we need to know now is that they can do that and that they've shown that through doing that, they can manipulate a user's mood and because of the way Facebook works, because when you load a page in Facebook up on your mobile or on the desktop, Facebook is intensely watching and analyzing absolutely everything you do while you're interacting with Facebook. And so they can tell when they've made a decision to put something into your newsfeed, whether you're going to respond positively to it, whether you're engaged with it, or whether you disengage from it. And so you now have this feedback loop where Facebook is making decisions on what it thinks you will like 
or react to or connect to and then watches as you react or connect to it and takes what it's learned and then uses that again to make decisions about what's going to go into the feed. And so this process has been happening for about five years now, basically in the years that Facebook has been a public company. To come back to this, the reason why they're doing this is because Facebook needs to increase user engagement. That's what they call it. They want to make Facebook so alluring to you. They want you to be coming back that basically all of your free available eye time, your attention time is being soaked up by Facebook because the news feed has been so well tuned to what you want to see. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of uh, consequences we could talk about from this. A lot of ways to go. But one thing I, I wanted to, to to go back to from what you said is is your argument that while they claim this is curation, which is a, a kind of typical way we might think about it. I mean, if we're putting together our own, uh, you know, even on our blog and our favorite uh, recent movies and podcasts, you know, we're kind of curating a, a picture of th- of things that that have come, you know risen to the top of our particular attention or enjoyment registers and so they'll say oh we're curating you say no it's actually censorship but why do you feel that's a a justified replacement in the sense that because there's so much that could be on the feed and everybody knows you're not going to be able to consume the whole thing that on some level or another whether you call it filtering or curation or possibly you know, uh, uh, you know, you can think of it as um, a kind of censorship. What, what, do, why do we deserve to think of it as censorship? Well, I think it's because the the reasons for those choices to be made, the reasons for the curation, are not transparent. They're hidden by Facebook's algorithm, and I'm putting that sort of in the scare quotes. Facebook's algorithm is making those choices for. Facebook's ends, not for your ends. Facebook's end is to keep you engaged with Facebook for as long as possible. And Facebook will make any decision it feels is in its own best interest. So when you're losing that agency, you're really losing that ability to call it curation because it's not curation anymore. Curation is when you understand the mind of the curator and you understand that that curator is presenting their point of view because they have a specific point they want to make. This is not that. This is not about Facebook presenting their point of view. This is about Facebook trying to make a medium as emotionally affective as possible to keep you engaged with it. And so it's more subtle. It's more psychological. And this is why it's much closer to what we would think of as censorship to shape your mood than curation to shape a view. Yeah, or or even you know go all the way into you know brainwash and mind control. You know, I was I was of course this reminds me. You know, your article comes as well timed in the sense that you know even though uh, technology critics and and you know uh, you know new new media uh, you know intellectuals and people worried about politics and things like this have been worried about these trends for a long time you know we we're definitely in this phase where even mainstream voices are starting to say some pretty damning things and we're starting to be uh it it feels like there's a a kind of shift or a possible movement and we've even seen some uh you know responses from from facebook their 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 discussion about their recent algorithm change which we can talk about later um as a sign of them responding to this kind of more mainstream sense of threat. And I did real, you know, I was like, oh, is this just more of the same, you know, a little bit of hand waving just to, you know, let off some steam. But, but when you hear the actual phrase, 
mind control on Bloomberg News from, you know, Tristan <laughs> Harris talking about uh, the, you know, the, 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 the group they founded of these sort of, you know, kind of guilty uh, Silicon Valley tech guys who are like, this sucks. We got to do something about it. And so they, ha- they have a lot of play and they go out there and they're saying some pretty good stuff for, for still being, you know, kind of in the, in the framework of, of the world. Uh, but again, you know, mind control on Bloomberg is like, whoa, okay, so something is like, it's like we're all getting more aware of, at least hopefully, of what's, uh, of what's going on. Are you, are you hopeful that this is like re- representing like a, a real shift in like a broader audience? Or is this still a very small conversation that's happening with people who are already plugged into these uh, issues in terms of what, what uh, uh, awakening uh, your average Facebook user to the implications of their newsfeed? Look, the roots of this piece really do lie back around about January of last year. And I was at the Consumer Electronics Show and I ran into a number of friends that I hadn't seen for a while, all of whom in their own ways are deeply involved in technology and have been for very long periods of time. And each of them in their own language and in their own metaphors expressed a growing sense of unease about perhaps things have gone a little bit out of control. And I I think in some ways, the last days of reality is my own particular articulation of that. But I think what we've seen is we've seen such a rapid technological advancement that has had such a strong social component, which is in some ways different than the Industrial Revolution, which also had a very strong, very rapid technological component and was also very socially disruptive, but in a sense didn't get to the wiring of culture in the same ways that maybe we're seeing a lot of people who are now being touched in a lot of ways and they're all finding their own ways to sort of have a moment of pause around this. And some of this is going to be the natural sort of human resistance to change, but some of this may be also reflecting where we think our own autonomy as individuals lie or where we think our own sort of choices that we can make or the world that we want our children to inherit there's a lot of, I don't know if you want to call it nuance, but I think there's a lot of surface here. And then I think there's enough surface here for pretty much everyone to find an area on that surface that they can express some reservation to. Now, Facebook, because Facebook has 2 billion monthly users and about a billion and a half daily users, is an enormous surface. And because so many people are connected to it directly and because so many people have come to rely upon it as the way they find out about not just what's going on with the family, but what's going on with the world around them, to be able to take a look at that and say, wait a minute, maybe I can't trust this. Maybe this is telling me the wrong thing about Hillary Clinton or about Nigel Farage or about the Russians or about the North Koreans. If we start to get into that, then you really have this moment which makes people very uncomfortable about not knowing their place in the world and not knowing what's true. And that seems to be where we are right now. We're in this moment where there's so much information and yet it's so hard for us to actually know the truth of anything that we're a little bit stuck. 
Yeah, I mean, it, later on the essay, you really, you really wrestle with that. I mean, one of your striking phrases is really, we're, you know, coming to this point where we can, you know, bid goodbye to reality, meaning reality as we have experienced it, as we sort of a, a kind of social zone of agreement and and uh, where we kind of can recognize shared objects and with something that we share. It's not just our own personal uh, reality. But before we get to that sort of big question. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the other uh, other factors that go into technological factors that are kind mm-hmm. of driving this this crisis, which to, to some extent is already happening. We feel we see it with the fake news. We feel it if we reflect on our own insecurity and our own sense of, of not knowing has, has changed drastically. Um, but there are also things sort of on the near horizon that uh, could potentially just intensify this quite significantly. And, and one of the things you do is to sort of weave these things together. So um, let's go a little bit farther into uh, how, like, the f- uh, Facebook uh, or what the, what the deeper implications are and the deeper technologies that are going on in terms of these tracking uh, um, uh, techniques, which aren't just tracking, of course, they're actually building up what you, what you, we talk about as the profile, which seems to be one of the key ideas for people to really understand is this notion of a profile that can be understood by machines and marketed to very, you know, specifically. So talk a little bit about this, this idea of a profile and, and how what's a good way for us to, to wrestle with. So you make an excellent point here because I think if we want to take a look at any one thing and really pull it apart, we should start with the profile. So the Facebook profile started as that basic page that you filled out on Facebook. You maybe say the movies that you like and the music that you listen to and the people that you're friends with and you might like friends posts and whatnot. And that was what we think of as the profile. But that's now grown and it's grown. You can think of it almost like an iceberg because the visible part of your profile or any of your profile your friends' profiles, is in some sense the least important bit. It's the starting point. But what's happened now is that Facebook is using artificial intelligence. And we should back up a little bit. So artificial intelligence is a term that gets thrown around a lot. What we really mean here is systems that take in a lot of data, make decisions based on that data, and then watch the consequences of those decisions to see if the next time they want to make a decision, they can make that decision better. So we're talking about systems that can learn mostly by making mistakes. So Facebook now has a learning system attached to every profile. And so Facebook is now learning about you because of all of your interactions on Facebook. And that's being built into your profile. So it's almost as though Facebook is running a simulation of every one of its users. You can think of it almost like a little homunculus and all of these little homunculi are sitting inside Facebook servers, pulling the knobs and looking at you and learning from you and being little simulations of you. I mean, you can take a look at the the metaphor of the power plant and the matrix as sort of being one way that we could visualize the, the existential horror of that. And I don't it's overplaying it, but you can look at it that way. Um, but we do now have all of these simulations of us running inside of Facebook, and that is the profile. So now Facebook has, because they have had such good surveillance of us, and you need to understand that when you're watching, when you're on Facebook, 
everything's being recorded, but Facebook also sticks some data, it's called a cookie into your browser so that Facebook can track you when you're not on Facebook. So Facebook not only sees what you do on Facebook, it sees a lot of what you do when you're not on Facebook. That also goes into the profile. That also is feeding that model of you and your interests and your decisions and your passions. And so this model has become increasingly accurate, which means its ability to deliver what you want to see has become increasingly good. So now these models are delivering what you want to see. They're delivering what I want to see. They're delivering what someone else wants to see. That sounds great in terms of Facebook's bottom line and how much time people are spending on Facebook, but it has this very important side effect, which is that you and I are now diverging in our points of view of the world because you're seeing what you want to see, I'm seeing what I want to see, and there's a collapse of common ground between those points of view. And if we look at the absolute fragmentation of culture, particularly in the United States, Facebook is probably the greatest accelerant that's been poured on that fire. Yeah, it's really interesting when you when you start thinking about all these issues, you know, and if you, especially if you you have some sense of the history of, of of media in the 20th century at least, and and the kinds of discussions people have had, you know, a lot of these issues have come up at at earlier points when people are talking about advertising, let's say, and you know, advertise you know, advertisers will say, well, we, of course, we want a better model of you because we want to bring you the things that you want, and you're like, yeah, but that's kind of creepy and weird too, and it's also kind of like propaganda, and you know, so the, these these elements have been part of the of the kind of circulation of of um, of media thought for a long time, but they're just so intensified now with the degree of surveillance and the amount of data. And you know, you you make the point in in your uh, in your essay about you use the phrase, or I think or maybe you quote someone, but the, the phrase "intimate," that it's not just that these things know us better in some ways than we even know ourselves because we like to think we're we're more autonomous and we're making more decisions than we probably actually do we're probably running on autopilot and habit and inertia and you know the same fantasies the same kinds of things more than we want to admit but it's that there's a there's a weird intimacy there where there's the there's the sense of if we knew if we could see what that profile was, if you laid it all out and you kind of wrote it down like a story, like it was a story of one of these simulacra of ourselves that's running around in their servers, it would be profoundly unnerving. You know, it would be uncanny and disturbing in a really remarkable way, sometimes kind of almost insightful and perhaps even, you know, useful in that sense. But it's like there's this intimacy that we're not aware of. Which is almost, which is, what is that? What, I don't even know how to think about that, where, where there's like forms of knowledge that know us so well, individually, my particular self, although I'm not on Facebook. Uh, but, you know, it's, 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 a, you know, it's, it's not limited to, to that by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and, it, and, and, and so what I'd, I'd like to know is like what to do with that, that creepy feeling. Like, what is it? Is it, is it just a, a natural human response? Is it a kind of political horror? Is it a kind of transition zone that we need to pass in order to embrace the post-human future? I don't really believe that, but I'm laying it out there as a possibility. <laughs> you know, some people would say that, you know, that, that like the uncanny valley and the sense that new technologies are kind of creepy and weird is, is sort of a residue of our, of our analog nostalgia. We got to get with the program, et cetera, et cetera. 
So how do you work with that? I mean, how do you, do you, do you tune into those feelings when you have them? Or are there certain moments of doing this kind of research? Because you're so familiar with the stories in a way you've, you're kind of inured to the shock of it for the most part because you, you work with it. But how, how, do you, how does that stuff come up in your life too, that sense of like, oh God, you know, that, that uncanny um, affect, which is important because in a way all we're talking about is affect here. But the, that creepy affect is really key. So one of the most interesting interviews that I did when I was working on the piece was with Andy Pauline, who's an old friend of mine, but also one of the deepest thinkers when he thinks about experience design and service design, which are, are, are part of the constellation of technologies that I guess underlie a lot of this. And the reason that it feels seamless and invisible and omnipotent and he really, he unrolled it very nicely. He said, listen, you know, my, my, my wife is a psychoanalyst and, and, she learns a lot by observing her patients and she knows more about her patients than they do. And, and, and he, I feel like Facebook, he said, is like this. That Facebook, in fact, has this intensely private, intimate, seductively close view of the person. And, and I really, there was a real penny drop moment because I've been in analysis for 10 years. And so I have a very close relationship to my analyst. My analyst clearly sees all of my behavioral patterns that I might be resistant to seeing because that's the nature of the neurosis. Facebook is seeing them and weaponizing them. That's what was proven from that slide deck that they were trotting around Australia last year. So Facebook can see and then use that to undermine the individual. And so I think at some level, it's less creepiness. I mean, yeah, it's creepy because you're being watched. I think at another level, it's actually quite how dare you. There's a lot of, I think, probably righteous anger that I'm feeling around this. How dare you do this? And how, the other question then is, what were the series of decisions that were made by both parties, that were made by Facebook as a commercial organization on one hand and made by Facebook's audience, who were people who were trying to share and were willing to engage in perhaps something that has turned out to be a Faustian bargain? And so I really think that one of the best ways to think about this, because Facebook is not transparent, because the algorithm is sitting there and not giving away its secrets and not showing us what it knows about us. And you, you absolutely hit on it. Some of what it knows about us could be used to heal us. It could be able to point out the bad patterns, the things you don't want to see. Of course, that's probably going to make us angry with Facebook. And that's why Facebook is not sharing that information. But if we get beyond that, if Facebook is simply holding that pattern data and is using that pattern data to its own ends, then I think you can almost think of it as a bit of a demon that's been invoked and has a bit of your psyche trapped in it and is really allowing itself to play out through your psyche because it knows what notes to play. And so perhaps rather than feeling sort of that sense of existential horror about it, it's perhaps the feeling of the sorcerer's apprentice. We've invoked something and now we're going to have to go back to the book and figure out how to put the demon back again. Does uh, I mean the the analogy itself is not is not lost on me because it's it's another example of the strange way that uh, 
you know, even our our most advanced technologies put us in a framework where the the you know the analogies of, of spellcraft and and demons and golems and such are are in some ways the handiest way to think about it because if we just think about it as sort of like rational subjects, oh, we're just using a technology to do the things that we want to do. Sure, it has its its flaws, blah blah blah. You know, we often we miss the deeper story. It's almost when you, you almost need to get a little paranoid or a little uh, haunted, uh, a little, yeah. um, you know, sci fi on the thing to really be able to recognize and think at the scale that is required because these things are so monstrous and because their tentacles are so deep. You almost re- it's almost useful to have those kinds of metaphors as a way to understand you know, what, what we're doing, where we are, and just how tense those relationships are, even though they're made to seem so transparent and so smooth uh, and, and, and so easy. One question I, I wanted to go with a little bit is about the one of the principles that the, that the original, that the Australian report uh, turns on, or at least the deck that they were talking about, is this idea of kind of neuromarketing. That that you're actually able to sort of track the particular emotional state that people are in based on their behavior because you've seen it before. And you talk a little bit in the piece about Cambridge Analytica. If people have been reading deep, you'll 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 recognize there's a very specific political uh, angle here where where, again, using profiles, people will be able to be targeted individually as being susceptible to certain kinds of messages, even certain kinds of lies uh and because of their this sort of model of their psychology uh or even their neurology if you will um then they're able to make these sort of targeted ads now and go go, i mean yeah so i want i would i'd like to hear you talk about that and particularly like should we really believe it is it that accurate is this part of the way that marketing has always sold itself or do you think we're really at a place where we got to go yep this stuff is super predictable and it's super easy to manipulate us this way. Well, I think the first thing we have to do is sort of feed this back into what we already know about artificial intelligence, which is that if neuromarketing is about delivering exactly the right message at exactly the right moment to get exactly the right result, and it doesn't work, these systems are designed to learn from that failure and get better the next time and get better the time after that. So unless your premise is fundamentally flawed, which doesn't seem to be the case, then what we can say is we're converging on a period of time when these systems will be profoundly accurate in their ability to deliver messages. But I wanna take a look at one specific example. And the interesting thing is that most of this research has come to light since I wrote the the article, which was sort of in the second half of last year, there was a specific Facebook ad that was going around that equated Hillary Clinton with Satan, like one to one, like voting for Hillary is voting for Satan. And it went out to a very specific demographic. And there's been an analysis of how that went out. And this is where we now Cambridge Analytica into the story. So let's step back. Cambridge Analytica, founded by Robert Mercer. Now, Robert Mercer is arguably the closest to a Bond supervillain that we have on Earth today, because he is simultaneously a genius-grade computer scientist. This is widely acknowledged. He parlayed that understanding of computer science into producing an algorithmically driven hedge fund 
amassed a multi-billion dollar fortune and then started using that fortune to build an array of right-wing organizations, most important among them Breitbart. So the, the sort of the senior sort of neo-American um, white power, but sort of crypto and all of that organization on the right. So, so he's been funding that. And then again, at the same time, around two years ago, he founded Cambridge Analytica. Now, Cambridge Analytica has had two very high-profile clients, Nigel Farage representing the Brexit vote in the UK, and as a former vice president of Cambridge Analytica, Steve Bannon, uh, the, uh, I don't know what you'd call him, the vizier, the, uh, the gray eminence behind the Trump campaign. So Cambridge Analytica does similar things to what Facebook does in that they establish a very detailed profile database on every voter that they can in every district. Now, one of the points that people may not be clear of when they read my essay is everyone thinks that Facebook's got this profile data and that's bad and maybe we just get Facebook to stop doing it and that'll be fine. It doesn't work that way. So much profiling data has been gathered from so many sources on us, almost all of which is commercially available to the buyer. So what Cambridge Analytica can do is Cambridge Analytica can integrate what it knows from Facebook with all of the other commercial databases it buys. And when you start putting these databases together, you're no longer sort of talking about aggregate or even anonymized individuals. You can generally target down to a specific individual at a specific address, because this is simply what we learned about how to use these big databases in conjunction with one another. Once Cambridge Analytica has that and has the profile of the voter, they can start to understand exactly what kind of messaging would move a voter. Now, in systems where they have voluntary voting, so in the UK and in the United States, you can deliver a message that will either keep a voter away from the polls by basically saying that both candidates are bad, so why would you waste your time or why would you make a bad decision? Or what they can do is they can make a uh, deliver something that will actually take someone who might have been in that camp and drive them to vote. We come back to this example of Hillary S. Satan, evangelicals who were very questioning about Trump's motives and morals as a human being would be getting that particular message at exactly the time that they needed to motivate themselves to get to the polls and to vote, because, of course, they wouldn't want to, by lack of acting, vote Satan into office. Now, was, was any of this effective? Well, we know that Brexit produced an unexpected result. We know that Trump produced an unexpected result. Is this the reason for that unexpected result? We can't know that. We can know that that technique is at work now and that that technique will be part of electoral politics in the 21st century. Yeah, that seems it's, you know, and it, and it again, the resistance to it, you know, has to do with like, the sort of uh, baseline resistance of like, oh, yeah, I'm a little influenced by ads, but probably not very much. You know, everybody thinks they're not very influenced by advertising, even the old, not particularly weaponized advertising of the past. And, and when you're dealing with uh, the fine grained uh, uh, delivery methods and the sort of singularized delivery methods we're talking about, plus the fact that there's all there's just always more and more data on neuroeconomics, on uh, you know, social psychology, on all of this information that has been uh, so important to, to uh, marketers, among others, it, it's hard to imagine that we're not just kind of swimming in a, in a sea of brainwash in, uh, in, in many ways. Um, 
I wanted to go uh, because this raises this sort of you know dystopian uh, scenario, and you make a, a I think a very helpful um, uh, contrast in your piece when you're sort of recognizing the dystopian implications of this situation, which involve again, as you put it, saying goodbye to reality or reality as we've known it. Uh, the, there's no longer the consistency or the 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 um, uh, connections that, uh, or the sense of agreement, you know, we're just all in our own little silos uh, and trying to make decisions and not just have social conflict. I mean, it's very difficult to imagine how we're going to face the other big issues that we're facing if we're already, you know, if we're, we're manipulated in this way. Um, and so talking about the, the dystopian aspects of, of this kind of control society, the sort of neuromarketing uh, management of affect and belief, um, you compare 1984 and Brave New World. And I think there's a lot of good reason to go back to those two classic dystopias. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things I think that's interesting, and really what we can do is we can already see a kind of cultures around both of these points that are emerging. So let me let me go to the, the 1984 case. Uh, which is a kind of a, a pervasive authoritarianism, what we would call surveillance authoritarianism, which is a new phrase. Probably we're going to be hearing that phrase an awful lot in the future. China looks like it's perfecting a surveillance authoritarian culture. And some of that's just because of the Communist Party control, but some of that's because their big three internet companies, so that's Baidu, which is the equivalent to Google, and Alibaba, which would be the equivalent of Amazon, and Tencent, which would be the equivalent of Facebook. They're deeply integrated into the Chinese state and into the Chinese governing control apparatus. And so what we've seen emerge over the last sort of 18 months is something that they're calling the social credit system. So effectively what the Chinese government is saying is that all of your activities online are being monitored and, and you're basically being scored against them. And so if you do things that irritate the state, your score, your social score, your social credit will drop. And if your social credit drops too far, you may find it hard to, in the beginning, at the first level, just to get a bank loan, maybe to buy some property, uh, or maybe to get your kids into the right school, or maybe to get another job, or maybe to get any services at all from the state. So effectively, what the state is doing is it's a form of soft power intimidation in which that surveillance is being used, but in a very visible way in order to have people self-censor their own public behavior. So that's that's the, the 1984-ish model. And of course, it doesn't really have the same sort of profound darkness or ugliness of Orwell's book. But what we're seeing, I think, a lot more profoundly in Facebook is I think the first phase of this is what I'm going to call surveillance utopianism, where the systems are monitoring you and, and knowing you so well that they're delivering you what you want. They're doing everything they can. And you think Mustafa Mond in Brave New World basically said that the, the civilization was dedicated to happiness for the greatest number. In that sense, it was highly utilitarian, focused on a specific goal. And we can see a system like Facebook being tuned, perhaps joining with the apparatus of state power to keep st uh, citizens perhaps not well informed, but certainly uh, happy, keeping them well contained within themselves and within the culture as a whole. And when you pair that now with where we can clearly see 
Amazon is going, and Alexa is sort of the harbinger of this, where there's a surveillance device in the household, but that surveillance device is the portal to the world of materiality. Alexa, bring me whatever, and a drone shows up 10 minutes later, or an autonomous vehicle in a few years will show up with the groceries or with the new thing or whatever the shiny toy is. And so you have this idea that the environment is becoming utopian and in some sense infantilizing, because this idea of just being able to ask for something and having it immediately delivered is also profoundly infantilizing. Infantilizing. That's the fundamental nature of the civilization and brave new world. It is a fundamentally infantilizing culture. And it's not hard to see that we're already well on the way in the developed world toward that. China seems to be taking a different path, but certainly in America, in the UK, in Europe, in Australia, we seem to be walking very much into a, a culture of surveillance utopianism. Yeah, and there, there's we we got about I don't know 15 minutes left, a little bit less. So there's you know there's tons to talk about. We could keep going all day, uh, but I wanted to think about two two different vectors of um, of pushback. If we can touch them on touch on them both within that time, it would be great. One is of course a col a collective uh, uh, political and technological form of pushback. I mean this whether it's we're we're going to consider um, where we, whether we recognize that something like, like, like Facebook is a utility that needs to be regulated for the public good and that they cannot be both a utility and a private company maximizing profit at, at any, uh, you know, f f over any human value. Uh, like that requires some kind of, ma you know, major political will or questions of economy. How does the, how do do economic questions uh, and and state regulation function within our new environment? I mean, are we really ready to give up on the idea, you know, to hand it over to the techno libertarians and give up on the idea that regulation uh, can be efficacious at this point of view? And so, I, I mean, I want to hear you on that. But just to give you the other thing, I would love to get to is also some of the personal consequences, psychological, even spiritual consequences of the condition that you're talking about. So, if we maybe we can just touch on them. Both, but uh, but on the political end, what seems to be a good sign for you? What do you see as being um, uh, a gesture, at least, in the right direction? So let let let's let's take this uh, apart a little bit because what we really want to take a look at is if and and it's quite clear both Steve Bannon and Dana Boyd and Dana Boyd did this back in 2010. She's an amazing researcher who's worked with kids using social media pretty much longer than anyone. She said Facebook is now a necessity. It should be regulated as a utility. And Steve Bannon was saying the same thing in July last year. So there's this idea at play that Facebook has become so central to social discourse. And in fact, it's become almost impossible to have any sort of online social discourse without using Facebook as the foundation for it. So where a lot of this was happening through a lot of varied, maybe not very comfortable, but lots of varied channels, even just 10 years ago, that space is now entirely colonized by Facebook. So you have to actually give in, you have to submit to it, to its rules, to its regime, to its surveillance in order to participate in civil culture. So if that's the case, why not regulate Facebook? And there's a really good argument for maybe not doing that, which is that regulating Facebook effectively puts the tools of emotional, mass emotional manipulation, and I should say mass highly targeted 
emotional manipulation. So it's not just like broadcasting happy things on the television where it's going out to a mass audience. Everyone's getting what they want, and that's happening continuously, and it's continuously improving again because it's backed up by that profiling artificial intelligence. Can we hand those keys to any government, to any politician, to any bureaucrat without giving them an irresistible temptation to start to use that to shape the public mind? And this is where I think we don't know the answer to that question. Until we can find our way to an answer, we are not allowed to do that. And we're just going to have to suffer with this private company basically just churning through our emotions for its own profits. So I think that's that's the first half of that. The brighter side of things is that, particularly in the EU, the nice thing about the EU is the EU does not have a dog in this fight because none of these companies are European. Most of the big ones we think of are in Silicon Valley. Some of them are in Russia. Some of them are in China. But the EU doesn't really have its huge Internet companies. And so it can regulate freely without there being any sense that it's a conflict of interest with the commercial imperatives of the EU economy. And the German government and the German, uh, I guess, uh, apparatus around commerce and regulation has been pushing back severely. Just yesterday, there was a court ruling that said that consumer law was being violated by Facebook in that their privacy settings are far too hard for most individuals to be able to use. The antitrust regulator is looking at Facebook as a cartel because, as I said, all social space has essentially been colonized by Facebook. And if that's the case, then Facebook is functionally a cartel and maybe needs to be broken up or regulated like a cartel. We can see the beginnings of regulatory frameworks happening in the EU. Now, importing those to America, where you essentially have regulatory capture because these trillion-dollar companies, we're not longer talking billion, but by the end of next year, Facebook and Google will be trillion-dollar companies. These trillion-dollar companies can effectively buy all of the political support they need to be able to support whatever capital aims that they have for themselves. That's not going to be true in the EU. So it may be that the EU is setting out a different course. I tell folks in Australia that because we also aren't home to any of these companies, we can make decisions for ourselves about the settings that we want for where these services lie in our lives and how we constitute our relations with them. So it's, I think it's always going to be hard because these companies are going to find many different avenues to push back. Some of them are going to be very alluring. Some of them will be mostly invisible. But I think that what we're seeing, at least in the EU, and is giving me some hope, is that there's the beginning of policy frameworks. Yeah, yeah. Well, lucky you. <laughs> I'm here for we're here in the heart of the beast, uh, you know, and, and it's it's really hard to see, uh, you know, given uh, American politics and uh the power of corporations in this land uh, and the sort of frazzled nature of the, of, of the public will and the, the kind of dis, uh, complications of uh, the left in, in the states. It's, uh, it's hard to see a, a good way out except there, uh, some sort of semi-magical technological solution. Um, but I wanted to turn on this, this last few minutes to this sort of question of, of the individual because one thing that keeps that comes back to me um, is how much uh, it's not that we, uh, you know, completely have asked for the situation, but it is sustained by the fact that people in an unreflective way want to be catered to, want to be happy, uh, want to get what they want, 
uh, want things to work out easily, want to not think about externalities, want to not think about all the invisible complexities that everywhere shape our experience as modern people, whether we're talking technology or the environment or whatever. I mean, it's incredibly complicated out there, even if there wasn't the threat of climate change and all these looming horrors, even if it was just the complexity of our current moment, um, that that's overwhelming. And it's completely understandable that people want to maintain their bubbles. In fact, to some extent, we all have to have some bubble that we can at least spend some of our time in, whether it's the domestic space or whatever. Uh, even though, it, I mean, it's just remarkable to me that, that people let these surveillance devices into their domestic homes. I just can't. I mean, to me, it's inconceivable. It's like you would choose to do that. It just blows my mind. So I'm clearly no longer even close to normal. I never thought I was normal, but I'm not even, you know, I'm not reading the world the way that a lot of people do in terms of the value of convenience, the value of sci-fi fun, the value of this kind of infantilizing consumerism. But it seems to me that if you could boil it down, there's like a way in which it's not necessarily that good to be pursuing happiness in that way. It's not necessarily that good to be seeking a respite from the terrifying and difficult complexities of just trying to get a model of the world that 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 is not just completely narcissistic. Like it's not necessarily a good idea to do those things. And yet what would compel or impel anyone, a busy person holding together, family, it's always chaotic. My God, of course they want the drone to bring them the, you know, the dinner that they forgot to make or whatever. I mean, it's, you can totally understand why people are in this situation, but it also seems that there is something to be said for a kind of movement, a kind of gesture, a kind of refusal to accept the sort of model of cheesy consumerist utopia that drives a lot of these things, inc including the model of being happy. It's like, oh, I feel happy when I use... I don't want to be happy like that. I mean, I, I, I'm not even able to be happy like that, but I'm glad about it. So, <laughs> uh, you know, this is, I'm ranting here a little bit, but, I, but I'm trying to... I, I, I want to hear how, how you see how people individually or, you know, amongst themselves, uh, talking to their friends, might reframe how their their motivations are in the world based on this new reality you know you ask i think the right questions and i don't think that we necessarily have really good answers yet because i think the questions themselves illuminate in a sense the horror of the situation that we are um we desire this kind of safety. We desire, desire this kind of security and surety and quiet and are not perhaps fully informed about the bargains that are involved here. So maybe this involves some level of, of storytelling, of myth-making. And that was, you know, one of my aims in The Last Days of Reality was to tell a compelling story. It's weaving a narrative that gives people a frame for thinking about what their actions mean. Because one of the things that humans kind of suck at is this kind of long-term consequential thinking. I mean, global warming is the, is the absolute sort of concretization of that lack of forward thinking about consequence. These kinds of things can display their consequences in real time. But of course, the people who create them don't want to illuminate the whole bargain. So maybe what we can think about, Dan, is how we actually remember that that bargain is being renewed in every interaction, that every time 
time we make that choice, every time we hand over that data, every time we hand over Facebook, that we're feeding an actual autonomous beast. You know, it, it's funny because in some ways I don't actually blame Facebook for any of this. Facebook made some commercial decisions, but the consequential nature of those commercial decisions, Facebook didn't know this was going to happen. They didn't really even think that far ahead. Maybe if they thought about it, but in some ways they're as trapped within this, even though they're profiting from it, they are as trapped in this system as anyone else. And so maybe what we need to think about is how we actually break through. What are the spells that we can cast that shatter the mirror of our own perception that's keeping us bound up tightly in these systems that are knowing us so well that they can whisper the sweet nothings to put us back to sleep. <laughs> well, that was an amazing sentence, man. That's a, I'm going to let that one resonate here for a little bit. You know, go back, play, hit rewind and listen to that one again. Uh, that, uh, yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, what's, what's so strange about it is that, is that the, the difference between profoundly philosophical questions about the self, about free will, about what does it mean to be happy, about what should be the goals of, of, a, of a human life, like these, these long-standing questions that have never had perfectly adequate answers for them are, are really like woven in more and more intimately to these very political questions of social control, of economics, of uh, te the technological imbrication of human beings with non-human systems, the whole role of artificial intelligence as something that's shaping who we are, like all of these big technological real world questions, they turn around these other ones that are, that are much more profound. And the only thing that I could say as sort of a, you know, goad or a guide is just that at the very least, if people are picking up on these disturbing questions is to go into the disturbance mm. and, and, and it's not fun. But you're going to face you're going to it's going to bite you anyway. And there's some way in which and they, if that means maybe, you know, becoming more of a philosopher, thinking more about death, thinking more about, you know, what does it mean or whatever? That might be one form. But there's as you say, there's a lot there's a big surface area. But going into the discomfort seems to be a key part of the process. I, yeah, I agree with you. And, and the people who I know who are, I think well aware often because they design these kinds of systems or they interact with them, take a very skeptical view toward them. Just at that, at that very sort of top layer, you know, when something's asking for your data, lie. I mean, maybe not on a government form, but when some commercial organization is doing it, lie. And see how that data comes back to you. Watch it as it makes its way through these systems. Become aware of these loops. They're trying to hide themselves all of the time. But you can do things, you can be a little mischievous and you can find ways to illuminate your own passage through these systems and the world actually by just sort of sending them the wrong little bits. Well, I think uh, we're going to have to leave it on that trickster note there. Uh, Mark, thanks so much uh, for joining us here. It's been a real pleasure, Eric. Yeah, I think we I hopefully think we did it, man. We, we made up for the last time. We did. I, th I, I can say that with assurance. That one, even that one sentence, that was it. That was worth the whole price of admission. So thanks so much. And uh, I'll, I'll put the link uh, to your uh, uh, your piece online. And just to let people know, again, it's on the uh, Mianjin website, M-E-A-N-J-I-N.com. And you can find it with uh, Mark Pesci. So thanks again. And until next week, folks, keep your minds open. Thank you.